Welcome to the Love Good Podcast, brought to you by our patrons, where you learn how to love what is good and become what you love. This is Jimmy Mitchell, your host. Join me each week as I sit down with artists and thought leaders to chat about music, culture, and the art of being human. We're more than a subscription company. Love Good is a movement of artists, patrons, and young people who believe in the power of beauty to change the world. And we're so pumped you're here. What's up, everybody? You're listening to Season 3, Episode 10, also our 70th episode of all time. I'm having a hard time with the word 70th right now, but that's a big deal. That's a 7-0, okay? And I'm sitting down today with one of our regular contributors, Dr. Ryan Hanning, scholar, homesteader, an incredible man. He is married with nine kids and a tenth on the way. He's been a friend for a long time, and all I can say is he's probably the smartest person I know, like personally. Like the smartest person that I get to hang out with on a regular basis and actually be able to call my friend and my brother. So we're today talking a lot about the transcendentals and specifically what truth, beauty, and goodness have to do with virtue. Okay, so we talk a lot about this art of being human around love good. What does it mean to cultivate the art of being human, to live your best life? And and that could get like really cheesy and really relativistic really fast if you don't have an understanding of virtue. And today we unpack it like in Latin and in Greek. And I don't know, like my mind was blown because Dr. Ryan Henning explained virtue in a way that I've never heard before and uh, has everything to do with excellence. It has everything to do with relationship. And I think you're gonna be blown away as well. So in just a few moments, hope you enjoy this. I'll be back with Dr. Ryan Henning. Back in the studio with Dr. Ryan Hanning. How you doing, Ryan? I'm doing great. Yeah, happy to be back. Yeah. So, gosh, there's a million things that we want to talk about. Yeah, we start. I think we talked about like a million and two. Which is <laughs> last perfect. Podcast, it's perfect because yeah. we're kind of setting the stage. It's good. And we're hopefully piquing people's interest. And honestly, I have a hard time not going into student mode with you. A little bit like with Father Ryan Adorjan. Like I just start soaking in everything you're saying. I'm really tempted to <laughs> open up the journal. I was like a front of the room kind of student. Yeah. When did you know that you loved to think and to study? You know, like, I don't really know that I had a deep love for knowledge in high school or even college. I was just really good at playing the game Hmm. and knew how to please a teacher. (laughs) That's not very cool. I also knew how to take a test, you know, but it was a whole nother thing later in life to develop this thirst for knowledge and wisdom. Tell me there's like a ridiculous or funny story around how you got into academia. I, I wish there was sort of by accident, but my both my grandparents on my dad's side were in academia. So that definitely helps. They're both educators. Their, their joy for learning yeah. is like 
infectious. I so remember, it's in the family. I remember as a little kid, yeah, watching David Attenborough and my grandfather like fact-checking him with an encyclopedia. I'm like, wow, Papa, I think David Attenborough like knows what he's talking about. I was like, yeah, but I just, I think I'm not sure if that's right. And then like later, I'd be like, yep, found it. David that's Attenborough great. was a punk. No, so he yeah. needs to have a, like, this is your grandfather? It's my grandfather. He yeah. was like a little bit before his time because we could have had a blog, you know, oh, that absolutely. he just fact-checked everybody. <laughs> On, you know, I'm just thinking about primetime news. It gets yeah. pretty bad. And it's funny because he didn't do it. it was, there was no like uh, pride in him. It was just like oh, a matter yeah. of like, hey, let's just make sure we got the facts, the facts. Like the truth matters. Truth matters, you know. That's and then great. on my other side, my my other grandparents were all tuna fishermen. And so that's what the family grew cool. up doing. So in fact, they sold the boats when we were 12. My cousins and I are like, what are we going to do? They sold the boats. Like this is not going on another generation, you know. But the same type of intensity for a love of figuring things out. Mm. So not necessarily in an academic way. But you talk to my grandfather about tuna or fishing, he's got a doctorate in that. He's in like zone. he's got it down. Yeah. So there's just everywhere, I would say two two principles is this love for learning and this trust that there is truth. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like this 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 radical humility that just a few generations had naturally because they didn't they weren't so presumptuous. I think they figured it all out. Yeah. I and mean, they lived yeah. in a modern world, absolutely. But most of them still live pretty close to their food. They they typically didn't move away from home. They didn't have credit to buy stuff they couldn't afford. I mean, there's like these basic things that just, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Yeah. Education was very different. It was not pragmatic as much as it was functional and local. Mm. I mean, 60 years ago, they still stopped school for a month to go harvest. It's amazing. Like I mean, in big cities, like that's the, that was normative. That's right. And that there is truth and that truth is worth pursuing does fly in the face of modern relativism. Yeah. It certainly flies in the face of my own sort of fierce, individualistic American self-reliance, you know? Like the one thing I was taught at a top 20 undergraduate university, which was Vanderbilt, was not how to think, but simply how to be novel. You know, as long as whatever I was coming up with in a paper or in an exam or even in dialogue with the professor sounded kind of new and edgy, then they were were quick to celebrate it. it, you know? But as soon as you have any sort of hope that history can be connected, that there can be continuity of thought over time, that in fact, maybe we're not the smartest people that have ever walked on planet earth. You know, that maybe the ideas of today aren't nearly as sophisticated as the ideas of of previous centuries and previous cultures. That's humbling. And even if it ain't true, and I think it is, but if it ain't, it's at least worth assuming so the thirst for knowledge can yeah. grow and that, that sense of, wow, we're not alone in the history of thought here. You yep. know? We're, we're part of a long continuity and how beautiful that is. And so, yeah. you know, Newman talks about this, right? When he talks about development of doctrine, he says this sort of uh, appropriate love of the past and this idea that you don't reject it. You, yeah. you recognize the continuity and you build upon it. So where it is more true or more beautiful than what you have today, you got to admit that. Yeah. And where it's just, it wasn't quite there and anticipated its future, you got to admit that too. So I always tell my students their, their job in terms of navigating the modern world is to do what the church has always done, which is to find what's good, beautiful, and true in the culture and elevate it. Yeah. And then also to identify what's, you know, false, ugly, and stupid and, 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 and quash crush it. it. You know, exactly. <laughs> you know, as, as lovingly as possible. But it's true, right? Yeah. Like this is what I do with my own children as they grow up. You know, yeah. so funny story. Yesterday at, at evening prayer, so our kids all gather around, which is sort of a dangerous thing because we we gather around where the kids offer up their intentions. And so I say it's dangerous because very often what they pray for, like you know, the Lord just hears and just, you know, melts or something because they tend to get what they, they pray for. When it's a really, you know, ardent, <laughs> earnest prayer, which is really beautiful. But David the other day, when we're offering up, we said, you know, what are you thankful for? Because that was the gospel reading of Sunday about the 10 lepers, only one goes back, you know? And so David says, I'm thankful that God loves sin. And we're all like trying to navigate this. We're like, wait, did you say that God loves to swim? 
that God loves to send. Is that what he said? And he's like, no, God loves sin. And we're like, God doesn't love sin. sin. Sin is something that's beneath us. He's like, yeah, but God forgives us. We're like, oh, you mean that you love that God forgives us? He's mm. like, there it is, you know? Yeah. So this idea that, that you know, this, this constantly trying to figure out what's good, beautiful, and true and identify it, just point to it, speak about it, talk about it. Newman loved to say this lively play of ideas, you know, really yeah. talk about it. Simultaneously, let's do that with the false stuff too. Say, yeah, that's just not that good. Yeah. You know? And let's be willing to be real about it and, and be willing to offend people too. Like, you know, in charity and in truth, but to say, look, that's just wrong. You know, do that stands on a six story building crying out, you know, I'm going to jump, but don't worry, I don't believe in gravity. Yeah. I think we have an obligation as a, a member of the human species to tell him gravity exists and he yeah. ought not to jump. Yeah. But there's many people who are like, oh, I don't want to push my physics on him. <laughs> Come I know. On. It's ridiculous. So I think there's this, this, this way to, to navigate that without, I want to see us Lewis say, and without being a pompous prick. I think mm, it's this yeah. exact words. Yeah. No, it's so interesting. And I think that's been one of the great challenges and one of the great joys of the last certainly 15 years of my life of really caring about the truth. There was this phrase that several of my best friends in college and I used to use to describe ourselves in pursuit of truth. And I don't really know that we had the grammar down. I'm not a Latin guy, <laughs> but it was veritas peto. Okay, yeah. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. Pursuers of truth. It's, it's kind of, yeah. Kind of. I mean, I figured the, the clinching, the it, it grammar it, it, there it is works. really bad. It, yeah. but <laughs> point is, we took it seriously. Yeah. And it just meant that for the first time in our life, we, we didn't care about offending each other. Because first of all, who we were as friends mm-hmm. and as brothers ran so much deeper right. than whether or not we were going to be constantly sort of keeping each other's preferences and ideas sort of sensitively you right. know, in mind, right? That there was such a, a manly pursuit of truth there that out of that came deeper friendship, yep. out of that came deeper conversion, out of that came a sincere pursuit of freedom. Yeah, and it's you know? so beautifully mentioned too that you know, the relationship is so key. Yeah, it is. Like we call other people to freedom, you know, because we have these relationships where we've earned the credibility to speak. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't speak in situations where intervention is necessary, Mm. but it means that we think through it, you know? So like, you know, the people who are, you know, pounding the street corner, you know, lamenting air very often aren't effective because they're not willing to fall in a relationship and accompany people out of that. So that relationship is so key. And it's scary. It is, yeah. It means you gotta be vulnerable. You know, no one likes that. No, and you gotta have some... I don't know that it's an ability. Like it's certainly a gift that everybody can cultivate, which is the gift of loving people well. You know, like you've got to like authentically, yeah, authentically. You got to earn the right. You know, and and that trust would be at the heart of that first and foremost. So it's interesting because we could go on for quite some time (laughs) talking about friendship, but I can't even really understand friendship before I understand freedom. Mm -hmm. And I mean by freedom, virtue, like a real sense of what is good. And a, and a heartfelt choosing of the good. So it's not just that we, we see what is good in our lives and we choose it, but, but even one step further, we want it, yeah. right? That's a level of virtue that no one really talks about. Desire you know? for the good, yes. Isn't that cool that virtue even is on the level of the passions yep. and, and, and desire? So there comes a point where you, you begin to think, ah, like maybe it is more heroic and more virtuous to push through epic fear Mm -hmm. than to have never felt it in the first place before the same danger. But the reality is you want to not feel the fear in the first place so that being courageous is like second nature, the most natural thing in the the world. Only way to grow in virtue is to practice it. Right. So 
let's talk about this for a second right. because we're not exactly living <clears throat> in a virtuous society. Oh, yeah. a, and ever since the fall, there's yeah. not been a, a virtuous society. Yeah, we've, good all, call. we've all struggled. So there's, you know, there's no generation less holy or worse than the generation before. It's just the yeah. truth. Now it, it comes in different ways. Sure. But there's always been this challenge and temptation, but I'm going to go back a, a step. So I love etymology. I love looking at where words come from. Yeah. And I'm fascinated that in the English language, really important words some come from Germanic roots, some come from Old English. And then the ones that are really sort of important that we can't define often come from like Latin or Greek, which is mm. really cool. And it's always perplexing to me that in the English language, we've chosen virtue, virtus, which is the, the Latin form, rather than arete, which is the Greek form, or rather than just making up our own like English word. Interesting. You know, so like I love looking at that stuff to figure out. So things like good are really, that term, we have one word for good that describes a, a plethora of things. And it's really, it's an old English word, right? It doesn't actually come from the Latin. So these really specific words typically carry over from the ancient Greek or ancient Latin. So virtue is one of those. And, and if you look at the Ancient Greek, arete, and sorry for like <laughs> going going real deep real quick, but it's gonna it's gonna anchor us in a really important way. Arete is actually an, an archery term and it refers to the bullseye. It refers to the target. And arete refers not just to the entire target, but the actual bullseye itself. Mm. It's, it's the aim, it's the purpose, it's the that the word they use is teleology. It's the right. it's the actual purpose of the thing. So the best translation in English is actually excellence to actually hit the target, to actually get the bullseye. And so they would say that virtue is about human excellence. It's about mm. humans fulfilling their purpose in a way that's most human. Yeah. And then in, in Latin, the, the term virtue, you had that same sort of connotation about excellence, but it also then referred specifically back to love, like that specific characteristic of human beings in terms of relationship to other people and other things. So virtue is about the art of human excellence in relationship to people and things. Dang. That's what it is. Like, never heard that before. Just start there. Like, that's so cool, right? So at the heart of, of how we know anything is presumably based on its purpose, right? You can know a cup because a cup is meant to be a vessel to carry liquid. And a good cup would do that well. And a bad cup would be one that doesn't do it well. That's not offensive. That's just, right, our, articulating reality about yep. the truth of what a cup is for. And an excellent cup, so this is this is this cup is actually more fulfilled when it's more full than when it's less full. And it's actually more fulfilled, properly speaking, when it has good coffee in it than when it has crappy coffee. We had a discussion off camera about my tea snobbery, in which I refused Lipton, no offense to Lipton, Lipton makes a fine tea, but that I went for the Irish berries. And we joke that probably when Irish people come over, they probably go for the Lipton. <laughs> but you know, a fine tea is more fulfilling for this cup, or actually, you know, preferably a fine bourbon, but that's a little tall well, for well, bourbon. Well, and just to keep going on this for a little bit, like you've been in use of this now for a year and a half. Yeah, so Does presumably- that further fulfill it? Presumably be better. It's, it's been able to fulfill its purpose yeah. effectively over a long period of time, so on and so forth. And so we can we can make these assumptions about the natural world really easily. Our, our, we're wired that way to say, okay, what's the thing's purpose? Is it fulfilling its purpose? I, I'm free to use this as a hammer or a weapon, but that is, is not in- that's not the truth of what this thing was made mm. for. Well, humans have been asking themselves ever since we we reached, you know, ever ever since we were created, you know, what does it mean to be human? What does yeah. it mean to be in excellent at being human in a relationship to things and other people? That's Such it. Such a cool question. And you can take it even a step further to God, right? But virtue is not necessarily a religious thing. It's really just starting 
philosophically with other purposes. It's a bit of a dirty word for some people. It is, we yeah. hear virtue almost in a negative light, yep. even amongst Christians who think that it's somehow like a pulling yourself up by yeah. a bootstrap mentality or even a prudishness or yeah. a fearfulness. But we've got to reclaim what this word means. Yeah, let's reclaim it. So Alistair McIntyre does that in a great book called After Virtue. And yes. there's other people, there's a good friend of mine, Alex Havard, who I think is like the very best on this. He's a, he's a French lawyer in the EU who talking about a sense of place, we talked about a little while ago, but you know, he goes back to Russia because that's where his roots are. And he wants to sort of reclaim Russia. And he's a virtue ethicist. So he does, mm-hmm. and he writes about virtue very beautifully. And you know, so if, if, if virtue is the art of being human in relationship to things, to others, and if you, if you prefer theologically to God as well, which of course it is, but I just sort of make that preface because you can be a virtuous person and not have a theological or religious background. There's some very virtuous people based off of good philosophy. You know, if that's the case, so let's ask questions. What is a human being fully alive? What's a human being being excellent at being human? Mm. Well, we have these particular capacities. And so the ancient Greeks would look at the human person and say, gosh, you know, a human person is a complex beast, right? We have, we have a rational intellect, we have a will, and we also have these passions. And so Plato does this beautiful job. I call it the, the teeter-totter. And so if you think of a teeter-totter, right, we all know, we all know what a teeter-totter does. We, you know, I think lawyers have banned them now, unfortunately, on most playgrounds. Seriously. But teeter-totters build a lot of culture. And, Were and, they teeter-totters in Plato's day? In yeah, the, yeah he, he talked, well, there's, there's fulcrums and, and, and points and whatnot, right? So he's talking about it. And he says, you know, if, if you think of the human person, as a composite, and specifically the human heart is a, is a composite, is an amalgamation of, of different things. You have your appetite, your appetitive sense, that which you're pulled to, those things which you naturally need for your sustenance, your nutritive value. And there are some good appetites which contribute to that, but there's also all these other appetites we have that actually don't contribute to it. C.S. Lewis famously says that if we followed our appetite for sex, we would all have a thousand children, right? Yeah. And like, it would just be, it would just not work. Yeah. And so we have to naturally subdue and direct that appetite, not oppress it, but direct it towards That's what right. it's really made for and all the energy towards the production of a few children that you love very well, mm. right? Anyway, so there's this appetitive part, but then you also have your intellect the way you think about things. And they saw these two things, Plato at least saw them sort of in conflict. And so if you think of a teeter-totter, your appetite is like the fat kid on the teeter-totter, right? <laughs> if he sits down, the skinny kid's gonna go flying up in the air. And your will sort of like rolls between these things. Uh-huh. So if your will's aligned with your intellect, it can dra- direct your appetite towards that which is good, beautiful, and true. Yeah. It can direct your appetite towards that which helps you live excellently mm. as a human in relationship to things and others. Mm. So your will aligned with your intellect would tell your appetite, okay, don't eat the whole cheesecake, hmm. right? One piece is great. Now, I, I'm, I'm the type of guy that I could probably justify eating a whole cheesecake. I'd be like, actually, you know, the, the, the calorie intake, the ratio of protein, yeah, I'll just skip the crust a little bit, you know? I can probably, but that's not good for me, right? Yeah. And so, then he says, but if your appetite's aligned with your, with your will, so if you roll your will down with your appetite, it actually obscures hmm. your intellect. I and mean, think of that just for a moment. So if our will is aligned with our intellect. We have a well-formed intellect, well-formed will. It doesn't suppress our appetites. Mm. It directs them towards what's good, beautiful, and true. Yeah. It directs them towards virtue. And ultimately, can you say changes or elevates or purifies them as well? well I mean, can you, there come a point, you know, where you want it, not just yeah. choose it? Well, it makes you more of who you are, is yeah. what you would say, right? So you yeah. think about an Aristotle really takes this in, in Nakamakian Ethics and, and other texts where, where he looks at virtue then and what this is. We'll be back with Dr. Ryan Henning in just a moment. All right, everybody. I know that many of you are probably getting used to these like fairly high level conversations with people like Ryan. I'm never really used to them, you know, and I think a big 
reason that it always blows me away is because I like to read, I like to think, but I most especially like to really consider the big things of life in relationship with others, in conversation with others. You know, all of my best formation has always happened inside of a a pub, inside of a coffee shop. Yes, with a book in hand, but likely with a very dear friend with me. And I'm bringing this up because one of the ways that we stay in touch, not only with our patrons, but anybody who's interested in this power that beauty has to transform the world is through Instagram. Now, I'm not proposing that Instagram is a great way to be in relationship with people, you know, but it can be a great tool for staying in touch, for even initially coming into contact with people. And so if you're not on Instagram, don't worry about this. But if you are, go ahead and follow us today. Respond to the last few posts that we've had, you know, asking about what books you're reading, what albums you're listening to, and how you are cultivating virtue in this art of being human in your own life. We're so eager to be in touch with you. And obviously, Instagram is one of the the many ways we can do that. So check it out. Our handle is lovegoodculture. Going back to that sort of a teeter-totter analogy, we have a lot of people who think freedom is having the freedom to ally your will with your appetite, to mm. pursue whatever you want, even if what you want isn't contributing to who you are as a human. Think of how crazy that is. Yeah, That's like me saying that true freedom is using this as a hammer. You say, yeah, no, that's license, not yeah. freedom. Yeah, True freedom is to use it well for the purpose it was created. Well, mm. human beings, we're created. And, and whether you want to believe in just a biological random creation or a divinely inspired creation, doesn't matter. We were created for a purpose. Even biologists who I know well, who I, you know, I've, I've taught at a major secular university for years. I get on these, all these great panels and get to come in. And very often they're secular you know, scientists, but they're pretty objective about how they understand the mechanics of human beings and what they need to survive. Mm. And they end up making these really big ethical claims about virtue because a human being that eats too much food, that their will is allied with their intellect, isn't a healthy human being. Mm. They're not living virtuously. So anyways, all that to say that, that the virtue is that art of being human, living excellently in relationship to things and others. It's the will aligned with the intellect, directing the appetite towards what is good. Mm. And the idea is that it would liberate your appetite. True freedom is to have an appetite that wants what's good. True freedom is not suppressing your appetite. True freedom is saying, no, I'm going to choose that which is better, that which is best. Yeah. So the ancient Greeks thought a lot about this, and they would disagree with what actually constituted a virtue. Some thought virtues were innate and natural, and that anything you wanted that gave you pleasure was a virtue. That was the hedonist perspective. And you had Aristippus and Epicurus who were on two different sides of the spectrum, but they thought that all pleasure was virtue. And Epicurus would say, try to figure out how to have pleasure in the most you know, refined things of life. And Aristippus would say, just more pleasure, period, mm. quantitatively equals more virtue. Well, Aristotle totally rejected that. He says, no, 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 look, look at, are you really truly happier? You know, and, and he would look at Epicurus and, and Aristippus and, and others, both of his contemporaries, those who lived before him and then his school, continue this thought for those who lived after him. and said, no, that's to make you happy. You know, and then the cynics thought, well, nothing external can actually make me happy. So anything pleasurable is actually a vice. And Aristotelian says, no, that's not true either. It's not just the externals or the internals. You know, real virtue is about living according to your purpose. And the human purpose is made for something. And Aristotle actually comes to the conclusion that human beings are made for relationship and they're actually made for contemplation. Mm. They're actually made for what he would call a union with something more than themselves. Now, he stops there. He doesn't have the fullness of revelation. He lives prior to Christ. He's not a Christian. He's a, he's a very ethical 
principled pagan, but you know, Christianity takes us and just poof, explodes and says, yes, you're made for contemplation. You're made for relationship with God. That's what you're made for. But as you go there, that's your trajectory, but that informs how you live in relationship to each other and in relationship to things. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because you think about vice and the enslavement of vice, yep, right? It's the exact opposite that in fact, these, these continual returns to, you know, habits yeah. that make us less than who we fully are, they reduce our freedom yep. and they make it much harder to choose the highest good, God himself, right. in those moments where, you know, actually temptation's in front of you and so is contemplation. Yeah. Which are you going to choose? You know, in the moment of, well, I could be really heroic and generous and self-giving right now, or I could be selfish and I could turn in on myself right. before this person in need, Right. Those That's decisions are constant. You yeah. know, I certainly feel in my own life, as recently as this weekend, I found myself wanting freedom in the face of temptation and yeah. realizing, crap, like this is not easy. This yeah. is worth, you know, fighting for, but it is a fight, yeah. you know? When, when, I, is, when is ever giving in? really winning the battle, no. right? Right. I mean, it's, and we trick ourselves. So if, if that's the foundation of virtue, then it's about habitually choosing mm -hmm. to align our will with our intellect, to direct our appetite towards that, which is good for us. So why is it good to choose the first time? Because I think the idea of a, of a virtue is great. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a habit of choice, yep. you know, a joyful, easy. A habit of choosing the good. Yeah. Right. But like, sometimes you just got to get past the first time and yeah. then the second time. And then in a sense, work up some confidence to like, hey, I don't have to be a slave to that anymore. Right. But like, how do you get there the first time? Yeah, it's really hard. And I think, you know, the analogy of like a musician, which is commonly used, is probably the best one, right? That freedom comes from discipline. Right. You know, I can go up to a piano. I am not free to play the piano. Right? You are free to play the piano. You, you have the skill and the practice and the discipline and the time and the habitual perfection of the good of playing that instrument, right? Being in right relationship with that instrument mm. to bring yourself and that instrument to its excellence, right? I can't. I can go back and say, I'm free. No, I'm, I'm, I have license to do what I want because right. I have hands and there's a piano in front of me, but that doesn't make music. You and my five-year-old nephew both have it, that license. Exactly. Ooh. But that doesn't make me, that's not true freedom. True yeah. freedom is this proper discipline. So I think that first step is recognizing the natural virtues are not infused, mm. right? We can pray all we want for patience. And it's so frustrating because like there's a recent study, I was really shocked. I'm going to misquote it, but I think it was like 68% of evangelical pastors. And I was in an evangelical seminary where I studied Greek. There's a lot of good friends in that tradition. And they have such a zeal for the Lord. And we have, we, we shared just an incredible life together. And you know, 68% said that things like depression and addiction could just be prayed away. Prayed away. Yeah. yeah. And 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 yes, fully rely on God. God very often can and will intervene. Right. But the way he intervenes is never to overcome us. Mm. The way he intervenes is to woo us, That's to right. compel us, to remind us of who we are. The same way I do it with my own kids. When they yeah. sin, I'm not angry that they sin. I'm frustrated that they forgot who they were. Yeah. And so I got to call them out of that. Mm -hmm. And so when we pray for patience, what happens? God gives us opportunities. opportunities. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's a dangerous prayer. I, I, so I'm teaching a high school group. <laughs> this truly happened at St. Mary's in, in Phoenix. And I'm there to teach on virtue. So I have an entire, essentially I, I come multiple times a year and I sort of the guest, you know, theologian and I come in there and I, I, I teach on virtue and we walk through the virtues together. But I talk about like, test this out. I say, you know, if you pray for humility, God will not infuse you with humility. He could, but his preference would be to give you opportunities for you to practice habitually mm -hmm 
choose the good so that you learn to have humility. And humility, St. Teresa of Avila says, it's the virtue of living in the truth of who you are. Mm-hmm. Beautiful way of describing humility. Mm-hmm. Right? If you're really good at something, you don't hide it. Right? You say, I'm, I'm, I'm really good at that because I've practiced it or God has given me those talents, praise yeah, God. Yeah. But real humility says, well, it's not because of fully because of me, it's because of God. Where false humility would be hiding that or mm. the worst would be pride. The other side of that would say, oh, I've done it all myself. Mm. Anyhow, so I'm there talking to him and I say, you know, if you pray for humility, guys, I guarantee you, you're going to like slip and fall in front of the prettiest girl in the school. And right after I said that, I sat down and the chair broke. No. <laughs> and, the, and the kids thought it was a joke. The kids were like, oh, that was awesome. Well played, Dr. Handy. And only Simone Rascal, the, the phenomenal teacher, she knew that like it wasn't a joke. Like, it actually just happened, you know? Oh, and so like, amazing. I'm like, oh, you know, and the kids are like, that's great, you know, way to illustrate the point, you know? But it's true. So the, the virtues are habitual disposition towards the good. It's about choosing the good aligning our will intellect and it takes time. So to answer your question, you know, to, to initiate that step is, is just to really desire it. Yeah. St. Thomas Aquinas, and I just heard this quoted and I got to look it up because I want it so bad to be true, mm-hmm. but it wasn't quoted in an academic setting. And I've learned now, like, you know, There's you can take particular license and non-academic setting, but essentially you know, the question was posed to Thomas from one of his dear friends about, you know, how do you, how do you become holy? And he said, you, ha- you have to will it. Mm he would definitely say that. And I think he would also add a little bit to it, but I think you gotta will it, you know? Yeah. And so I think that the practical advice, because all of us, I mean, I'm, I'm coming here not as a person who figured this out, right? The, the, the mission is not to tell the patrons, hey, we figured this out, we're gonna share with you the, the secret to, to living in virtue. No, I'm still practicing it too. That's I right. still have my vices that tempt me that I have to choose against. And it's that constant choice. And so if you think of it like being a musician, you recognize that the virtue is going to take time mm-hmm. and that initiating it's always a first step. And that even if you feel very far behind, you're one step closer, yeah. um, you know, to, to where you want to be. It's every just, time you say yes. Yeah. Every time you say yes. That's cool to think about. And I think there's some spectrums here that I often consider, like within the church, you would have folks who would sit over here and say, no, like you said, everything is grace. Everything mm-hmm. is God. And, and that is fundamentally true. But our cooperation with grace mm-hmm. is really important. Yep. And virtue is one of those ways that we can cooperate with grace. On the other end, you sort of have people, this is more where I fall, yeah. thinking I can save myself, yeah. right? And that that sin of self-reliance just creeps its way yeah. in. And then, oh man, you're right. You pray for those opportunities to recognize your dependency, to recognize that you are nothing without grace, without God. And those opportunities become reality. And, and suddenly you're just back on your knees. And this is the you battle. Know? So, you know, so if you want to think of it this way, so Augustine, whose entire framework for his confessions about participation, mm. his entire life of debauchery is about learning how to participate well with the Lord's plan for him. Yeah. And what he discovers at the end of this of this journey is that by participating well with God's plan, he actually becomes who he's called to be. Mm. And God hasn't wanted to take anything away from him. God is not trying to oppress his will, but to liberate his will, to align with his intellect. I mean, let's go back all the way to the garden. God creates us in his image and likeness. We can geek out for a minute in the Hebrew, tetzlem and damut. It literally means those two words in Hebrew mean rational will and rational intellect. Hmm. When Eve chooses against God, it says she looks at the fruit and perceives that it's good to eat and takes it. In other words, she uses her rational intellect and her will, those things that make her most like God to choose against God. So, Augustine comes to the conclusion that no, the liberation of my will coming who I fully am isn't about oppressing my personality. It's not about you know oppressing my character. It's about shaping me into who God has created me to be. And that's where I'll be fully happy, fully alive. And he comes to that conclusion as opposed to Pelagian and the Pelagian heresy, which says, 
oh, yeah, but I'll do it on my own. That's right. Right? And so you know, if the analogy of the entire Christian life is that God is reaching out and that we're called to reach back, and this is like a big theme that I've come to, and I love art and you know, and you see this in really well done art. So any art that's commissioned will have a theologian usually, mm. especially for liturgical wow. you know, art. And so if you look in a lot of the great beautiful images of the healing of blind man Bartimaeus, you know, you recognize that the Lord's hand is very often modeled after the creation of Adam, right? We have God's hand sort of not fully extended like this, but sort of limp out there. Yeah. And Adam has to reach back and you have that little space in between. Yeah. Well, if you look at the great commission artwork, which would have had theologians, you know, assigned to them to help put in the canvas the truth of God's revelation, you'll see that. So, uh, call of Matthew. Call of Matthew. Same, same thing, Caravaggio. Right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And what it is, is that God is reaching out, but he will. We are not slaves. That's right. We have free will. And God will allow us to reach back and will allow us to not. Mm. And so, the, the key to virtue is recognizing that we need to reach back and that every time we reach back, we are indeed growing in holiness. And freedom. And incremental. Yeah, I love it. And the more free we get, the holy we are, the more virtue we have, and the more excellent we become who we are, the more excellent we are as human beings in living in right relationship with God, with each other, with the land. Right? And so virtue doesn't have to be enigma. Virtue shouldn't be a dirty word. And virtue is not value. value. Values change. Values are about taste. Values are about a calculus of what's necessary in a particular situation. Mm -hmm. So some values can be good and some values can be bad. And it's not a value war we're in. Virtues are ontological. Virtues are about what makes a human fully alive. Yeah. It's not about judging people either. You know, most of the work of virtue is really about looking at ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think when people see that and when we have a relationship, we started this conversation about friendship. Wow, we went full circle. But, you know, when we have authentic friends, and you know, my wife is my best friend. Yeah. And because we have that vulnerability and openness, again, not perfect. I'm still learning how to do this. I'm still learning how to be a man who's vulnerable. You know, but, in that relationship, she can constantly help me grow in virtue by saying, ah, that's not who you are. <laughs> that's not how you live. That's, that's not, that's, that's your, you know, that's not directing your passion towards what's good, beautiful, and true. Yeah. That's letting your passion enslave you towards what is false, dumb, you know, or quick, easy, and cheap, or whatever, yeah. <laughs> whatever, you know, three words you want to use there, those things that aren't going to actually fulfill And probably going to make you miserable in the end. Yep. So, okay, before we close out and yeah. say goodbye, give me that definition of virtue. This is groundbreaking yeah. moment for me. Sure. Let me see if I can capture it. Obviously, it has something to do with the good, something to do with love and in relationship with others. But just say it one more time. Yeah, so so virtue properly understood is, is really the art of living excellently. Yeah. Right? The, the, the art of living well in relationship with God, with with others, and, and with creation. And and that's that's how you define cups. Yeah. That's, that's right. how this is why we buy these microphones other other microphones, because they work better, <laughs> they perform better. And human beings that are fully alive and, and think of all the ways we do this, how beautiful it is. It's not monolithic. You know, we had sure reach out to us after one of our Did videos you really? exploded on YouTube. They're like, so could we sort of get some uh I don't know, I guess they wanted to turn our people, our watchers into their buyers. Yeah. All that to say, you are right. And and quality and excellence is not just a thing of craftsmen, it's a thing of every human being. Yep. We do have to wrap up. Yep, I know. Ryan, awesome as always. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait to have you back in uh, probably just over a month. Yeah, I look forward to it. Peace. Thanks. So we don't need a rush, babe. Let's take our time. Talk about the hard parts on green countrysides. If we can both discover what we need to find, I'll be. And I will be a navigator driving in the dark. And I will hold your hand if we lose touch of where we are. 
can creep you even tighter when it's pulling us apart Let me be your guard Driving through the dark, through the dark, through the dark Driving through the dark, through the dark, through the dark Driving through the dark, through the dark, through the dark Driving through the dark Well, we are officially in the countdown to Christmas. Next week, we're having another one of our contributors on, and that is, of course, Father Ryan Adorjan. And this is an entire conversation about the coming of God into the world as a baby 2,000 years ago. Yes, a whole Love Good Podcast episode dedicated to the incarnation, dedicated to the birth of Jesus, and it will release on Christmas Eve. We, we hope that maybe you don't listen to it on Christmas Eve because you're probably going to be with family or friends or something. But at some point that week of Christmas, don't forget there's 12 days, even more if you consider Christmas as a season. It's a great chance to dig really deep into your interior and ask yourself, what are in fact the implications of the incarnation on my own life? Like, do I really live in such a way that indicates belief in God's presence among us? And the incarnation reveals so much to me, not only about how to be happy in this life and and how to find fulfillment, but even how to navigate everything that I come into contact with every day. And that includes truth, beauty, goodness, and all of their counterfeits, especially in this culture of noise. So we can't wait for that episode. It'll be a very special Christmas release. We love you guys. We're praying for you. Hope you and your families are having an amazing final stretch here leading up to Christmas. And uh, we'll see you next week. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Love Good Podcast. Tell your friends all about us. Follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and join our movement today by subscribing as a patron at joinlovegood.com. Start enjoying our exclusive content and seasonal packages that will raise your standard for music, books, and art and inspire you to build a better culture. We can't wait to accompany you as you change the world.